welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I am joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it is wonderful as we explore Tzav today to be joined by Rabbi Sam Blustin, who, after graduating from the rabbinical school at JTS in New York and America, of course, in 2020, Sam has served as the associate rabbi at Ahavat Achim Synagogue, which is one of Atlanta's most prominent storied synagogues. Sam combines his passions for leading meaningful and potentially transformative prayer, not potentially, it truly is, with his love of teaching, with the hopes of inspiring communities that he comes into contact with to gain greater understanding of themselves and their place in the world. And having invited Rabbi Sam only a few days ago, it's been wonderful to listen to his music. So Rabbi Blasson, a huge welcome to you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be on today. So as we encounter, of course, the second parasha of Vayikra, maybe a broader question really for Vayikra itself, but how do we understand or should we understand sacrifices today? First off, I've always been drawn to these these parshiot with difficult content in them. I remember even before I went to rabbinical school, dealing with some of the more difficult passages of war and conquest in Deuteronomy and and trying to lift them up. But when we get into these pieces of, of priesthood, of how we offered sacrifices in the temple, it's a fun challenge for me to be able to lift up these different teachings and how we might be able to engage more deeply in them. I think the first thing that I'll say is the thing that everyone says, which is in order to understand sacrifices, we need to look at the name of what it's actually called in Hebrew, korban. And a korban comes from the roots of karov, which means to come close to God in a particular way. So there's something that's happening in these actions that that helps us to come closer to something which is larger than ourselves, to the experience of the transcendent. Uh, which we achieve in a number of different ways, but largely, I think, through experiences of deep presence when we live our daily life. And I think there are a couple of different ways that that we can look at sacrifices. One of them is through the lens of abstracting the idea or using prayer, using sacrifice, rather, as if we look at the English word for that of sacrifices, it literally is something that we give up of ourselves. And I think that's also appropriate when we look at our biblical texts, to bring a sacrifice, especially of the choicest of our flock or the best of our grain, our wheat, whatever it may be, is not only to give up something that we've toiled over, that we've supported for weeks, for months, maybe even for years, but it's to give up the best of what we have. And why? To do it for God, to do it for a relationship with that which is larger than ourselves, to offer that gratitude or to to say I'm sorry in a deep way, to exchange what should be our own lives for for the life of this animal In if we're talking about kind of sin sacrifices. So there's a deep sense of what is it that we are sacrificing in order to be in relationship with God, with tradition, with our people, with community, whatever it might be in that way. And I think 
there's also a piece of this too, which is a transformation. That we'll talk about talk about this later through our conversation, but our entire prayer system, rabbinic Judaism, is built on top of the sacrificial system. The evening, the morning, the afternoon sacrifices become the evening, the morning, and the afternoon prayers. The Musaf service on Shabbat literally means additional. Why? Because they offered an additional sacrifice in the temple on Shabbat and on holidays and festivals. And so this question of how we actually build upon this idea of korban after the temple is destroyed is also a part of this conversation. What are the ways that actually ritually we do still come close to God today? I want to offer one more one more thought on this question. I was reading some of the commentary of Rabbi Shai held today from Mechon Hadar in, in New York. And he talks about the book of Vayikra and in particular, this idea of the Mishkan, the dwelling place of God, as a, a as organizing the world through order. He makes a parallel to actually the first book of the Torah in Genesis and how God doesn't create from nothing, ex nihilo, but actually orders what is a chaotic world. And often our task as Jews in the world is to bring order through ritual, through separation, avdil, into a chaotic world. Certainly that was the place that the Israelites were living in as they wandered through the desert, not knowing when and when they would arrive in the land and what would transpire during that journey. And so this idea of actually that in the temple space, we inhabit an alternative world is really is a powerful one. I want to read just a comment he makes here from Samuel Ballantyne, a biblical scholar, who said that among us, who among us does not yearn for that one place, however small and difficult to find, that invites us to believe the very good world God created and the world in which we scratch our frail existence, which we scratch out our frail existence, are in fact one in the same. And Rabbi Held continues, Leviticus attempts to describe and thus evoke that place. In reading and studying Leviticus, we're we're invited to imagine and inhabit just such a space, if only for a brief moment. And it reminded me as I was reading this of Heschel and this dichotomy between a palace in space and a palace in time, the time being Shabbat, that this palace in place is is the Mishkan, the place where God, uh, God's presence dwells within our midst, versus what we still experience in those 25 hours or so of Shabbat, of that palace and time where we imagine what a redeemed world could be, the world as if it were perfect. And in this case, as if it were ordered, everything had its place, its ritual, its logical steps in which we, that are prescribed to us. And so I think that peace is important for us to think about in terms of sacrifices today. What are those places in which we really carve out that that holy space in place and what do we need to do within our communities to to create that palace where things are ordered things are expected but things are also holy and otherworldly and transcendent and where we can be deeply present with ourselves and others in community thank you so much for that wonderfully layered answer and also reminding us actually a very useful link to what Rabbi Adam Zagoria Moffat last week explored around Vayikra as really being an island in time, quite literally having, at least in the narrative, taken place perhaps over the month or so in 
what is a as he spoke to this palindromic structure but with leviticus right in the right in the center of the torah with movement either side but being relatively still perhaps moving directly then to serve and of course it opens up with that discussion of the burnt offering how do you to cast that how do you see the importance of what we encounter there the burnt offering is an interesting one of the five or so different types of offerings in that it's completely consumed on the fire and The other sacrifices in one way or another, maybe some part of it is consumed, some part of it is set aside and made holy only for priests to consume of, and some of the sacrifices are actually partaken by the person bringing the sacrifice and the people that they brought with them and the wider community. But the olah, which is the Hebrew for burnt offering, is completely consumed on the fire. None of it is is usable by humans in any way. And it's interesting also in the Hebrew that Olah literally means to go up. And that's what this offering is doing. All of it is being consumed and the smoke of it rises up to heaven. A couple of interesting pieces of this, that the Olah is considered a gift offering, that it's given voluntarily, meaning that it's not brought as an expiation for something. And we make no use of it in that. And we don't get any benefit from it, either for sustaining the priestly caste or for ourselves. And... I think the question of what are the burnt offerings within our own lives becomes an interesting question. Time in a certain way and within anything becomes a burnt offering. When this moment passes, we no longer have that moment. And so the ways in which we show up to community for each other, whatever they may be, in a modern sort of way are the burnt offering. And one question in a metaphorical way that that I might ask, ask myself and I might ask others is, how are we dedicating that time? And what are we dedicating it towards? Are we putting it towards something which is holy, something which lifts up these values and community? Are we deeply present in that time, in that moment? Do we watch the smoke as it rises? and smell the reyach nichach, that that beautiful smell that God smells from the results of our actions? Or is it time that's wasted in different ways? Is it time that, that is built towards other sorts of idols that we build within our own lives? I think that's one way of looking at this idea of a burnt offering and bringing it into our own day. What I'm going to offer one more thought, which comes from chapter 6, verse 6 of Vayikra, which is that this Ola is talked about as a perpetual fire. That actually what happens in the Mishkan and then in the temple is that this sacrifice is meant to be constantly burning. The priests are supposed to tend to it. And that the morning Ola, the morning burnt offering that's put upon the altar is the first thing that's offered during that day. And the evening Ola is the very last thing that's offered during that day. And so there's this cycle of these burnt offerings, which are sustained throughout our communities. It's reminiscent of the Ner Tamid within our synagogues today, that constantly burning eternal flame. But the Midrashim, you'll bring all of these kind of spectacular ideas to 
this idea of this pillar of smoke, that the wind didn't blow it, that it went perfectly straight up to heaven in that way, that that we that it didn't act like actual or normal smoke, and that the offering itself didn't actually create smoke in the way that our bonfires might, that it was this kind of metaphysical occurrence which happens. But a part of that flame is that that while God, they say, sustains this fire, that nothing needed to actually happen to it, still the priestly duty was to maintain this fire, to make sure that it didn't go out, that there's an interesting tension and dichotomy between these two pieces, that, that God will sustain this fire, but also we need to tend to it. And so I think that idea for us in our communities today is also a meaningful one of how we sustain that that light within our own lives, that fire. How do we support our communities in the ways in which we uh, we offer that light into to the world through our actions, through our teaching? I think is an important question to ask ourselves. Perhaps as we've already been, as you've already been dwelling already longer than any detail of the sacrifices themselves, the commentaries over many generations have really internalized the notion of sacrifice, not least through prayer itself. What perhaps of these most appeals to you? I want to offer a couple of different teachings by way of answering that question, because I think there there is so much that we can learn and raise up through through these ideas of how we might engage with sacrifice today. And one of them I mentioned earlier, which is this idea that one of the models for which prayer today is based upon is this the sacrificial system. We see this in Brachot, in one place in Brachot 26a. But the idea that comes of it is consistency, that we are constantly checking in throughout, throughout our day, evening, morning, and afternoon, to create these moments of offering. These times which are set aside not for doing, but for being, for offering up our words of gratitude, of sorrow, of longing, of of asking for forgiveness, whatever it might be, but we carve out a piece of our own time and a piece of our own hearts, as Rabbi Nachman of Breslov would say, in order for God to dwell within our lives and within our midst for a few moments. The idea of, of consistency within our prayer, not only the timing of it, but also the words of our prayer, I think, is also interesting. It's the same sacrifices on the cycle that were offered time and time again, day in and day out. But it was the bringer of those sacrifices which brought their own intention, which brought their own needs and desire to be closer to God in different ways. So I think that that's an important piece of it. The second text that I want to bring comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 10, verses 24 through 26. And I first heard this commentary from Rabbi Ed Feinstein out in Los Angeles. And this part of Exodus is Moses talking, arguing with Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally is relenting. And he says, some of you can go, but not all of you. And Moses says, everybody and everything that we own is coming with us on this journey. The men, the women, the children, and the livestock. And in the moment, in, in the most chutzpahdik way possible, Moses says, not only are we bringing our own livestock, but Pharaoh, you're going to provide livestock for us. And then he says something really incredible. Why? Because we don't know what we'll need in order to worship God until we get there. In a way of thinking about prayer, 
this is really an incredible statement. We have all of these livestock, all of these sacrifices, all of these things which are coming with us. Prayer upon prayer, two, three, four hours worth of services. The same prayers that we say every single week. And yet we don't always know what we're going to need until we get there. We might need uplift today. We might need comfort. We might need joy. We don't know what we're going to need to worship until we get there. And so that moment of sacrifice that Moses talks about in Exodus as the impetus for leaving Egypt becomes, I think, a paradigm for prayer for us as well. And we, and what we need in that moment is not necessarily what the person next to us needs, which is why we need all of these different modes, these different words as a part of our prayer. A third teaching I want to bring, I learned from a teacher of mine and former dean of rabbinical school at JTS by Danny Nevins. He talks about this idea of the reach nichoach, this pleasing sense which God gets from these sacrifices. And he brings the final Mishnah in Tractate Menachot, 110a, where he notices that this phrase, that a pleasing fragrance to the Lord is used whether a sacrifice is of a mammal, a bird, or of some grain. The difference in financial value between such offerings is enormous. Think $3 versus $30 versus $300. Yet all are considered pleasing to God. The sages say whether the value is great or minor, it is the same, so long as her intention is for heaven. So this idea that actually whatever it is that we can bring to community is a value. Whatever it is that we can bring to our prayer is a value. Whether we're just there and taking it in, whether we're raising up our voices, whether we can lead anything, we bring needs to be raised up within our community to really create a community of diversity, a community where everyone is able to be and bring of themselves. We read of this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the Mishkan and everyone brings to the Mishkan all the materials, whatever their heart desires of them until Moses finally says, and I've got more than I Thank you for sharing all of that. And also drawing the reference to Shemot as well. Intriguing. It was a question we explored like last week, just that change in continuity from Shemot in in Vayikra. Maybe finally, with Pesach just a few days away, we have, of course, in in Sav, a reference to the Matzah in chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, and where it speaks that Aaron and his, where it speaks that what is left of the offering shall be eaten by Aaron and his sons, it shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in the sacred precinct. They shall eat it in the enclosure of the tent of meeting. So we have this semi-allusion perhaps to the matzah, and I, I wonder really your thoughts on that. It's a really interesting, a really interesting parallel, and especially given the time of year that we enter into with Pesach coming in next week. And as I was doing some research and really thinking about this today, I noticed that there are a number of prominent commentaries that say there must be a link, but there aren't so many, at least of those older commentaries, drawing the link, the academic commentaries. But I want to offer a few thoughts. One of them is that we have this in chapter six, but it builds off of something that happened in chapter two of Leviticus, which states that no meal offering that you offer to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For no leaven or honey may be turned into smoke as an offering by fire to the Lord. So not only is it the priests that are eating this unleavened cake, 
But leaven can't even be offered on the altar to God. And I think that's an interesting thing, right? Matzah, when we think about it in the context of Passover, is is a sign of humility, is a sign of humbleness. It really is made up of the very basic building blocks of food. It's flour and Passover water. The, in the text here, it seems like it's flour and some oil and maybe some frankincense, something to flavor this or to make a nice smell when it's burnt on the altar. But this idea that it's linked to humility, I think, is an important one here. It's the very basic elements of life. Barbanel talks about this, uh, this idea. He says that the daily grain offering of the high priest teaches that those who don't have means to bring these very expensive offerings, that they shouldn't be ashamed that all they can bring is a grain offering, which was the same size, right? This idea that it's if it's good enough for the priests to offer to God, meaning it's good enough for God, then what even the least affluent person in the community, what they might be able to bring is desired and wanted by God. I think that, that that's an important teaching and lesson and goes back to what Rabbi Nevins taught and what I shared earlier. Now, but he also says that, it, that in doing so, it teaches the high priest humility, not to think of themselves as this great, high, lofty person, but that what they offer on the altar and what they consume themselves is the most basic of offerings, the most basic of foods, really, even grain and, and oil. And so I think that idea is an important one as we think about Pesach and Matzah, that especially as we go into our Siddharim, no matter how bountiful our Seder might be, or even if we only have the basic building blocks, what we're doing, the intention of it is what actually is most important. Whether we say all the words, whether we get through the entire Seder or how we bring ourselves into that space, what we're willing to offer up. This also goes back to the idea of sacrifice in a broader way. How we show up for our communities, for our families, or even if we might be by ourselves in some way, alone with Eliyahu Anavi, that's that piece of intention of what are we bringing to this moment, even if it's the most humble of offerings, I think is an important lesson for us. Rabbi Blustin, thank you so much for exploring with us and going, I think, full circle with that last connection. Thank you also for being daring and bold enough to take on what are what is perhaps a more challenging time of year with our Parshiyot. But thank you for doing so so beautifully and also planting important seeds for Pesach too that lies around the corner. We, we really look forward to welcoming you back. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do, of course, check out more of our exciting content that we have for you on our mothership, JewishQuest.org. And we do look forward to meeting again very soon.